Well, if you'll grab your Bibles there and go ahead and begin turning to Isaiah 42. And uh, we have some Bibles placed in the seats among you. And in those Bibles, it's page 602. Um, so as you're turning to Isaiah 42, we're going to be looking today at how Jesus is the hope for Christmas. Now, if your house is anything like mine, the decorations are up, the Christmas tree is set, and then gradually now, day by day, the base of this tree is collecting presents. And you know who in my house knows the best what's under that tree? It's my kids. You see, it's, it's become kind of, you know, over the, the past week or so, a tradition early in the morning when they wake up, they go to the tree to see if there were any new presents added to the tree. And if you listen closely, you might even hear them counting. One, two, three. I've got four presents under there. Oh, you've got one over here. And you hear them counting about the presents that are growing underneath the tree. Or maybe there were no presents added that night. And you hear the <sighs> coming out. Now, even as I'm talking, some of you are probably even drifting off into some land where you're dwelling on all of these gifts you still have left to buy. Is anybody there with me? Is that, uh, yeah, I knew that's probably what was going to be going on. Um, and so, so here's, here's what I've done. I wanted to help everyone out by just clarifying Christmas is two weeks from today. In case you didn't know, you've got two weeks, two weeks from today. And actually, I came across a list, a deadline of shipping dates for those of you who are online shoppers, you know, that is me. I, I could sit and, and find the best deals online, but you've got to make sure that it gets here before Christmas, two weeks away. So just wanted to help you all out here. Barnes & Noble, if you want to order from them and get standard shipping, you better order it today. Today is the deadline. You can get expedited shipping later on, on the 22nd. Um, but maybe you're thinking a little bit more like Old Navy, you know, for the whole family, kids, and a little bit there. December the 13th, that's FedEx ground, but they even offer December the 23rd. So, I mean, if you find yourself a couple days before, a couple of these do offer some last-minute shipping possibilities. Now, the finish line, you're looking at some sportswear, some tennis shoes, some new workout gear for the new year and all of these resolutions that you're going to be making. December the 14th, that's it. There's no expedited shipping. So you've got December the 14th, standard expedited. It's, it's the same date. You better get, that, get on that really soon. Maybe the North Face. I know it hasn't been cold yet, but you're thinking I probably should get some winter gear. Maybe this is your first winter in Boston. The 16th of this week. That's the only date they have available. So make sure if you're going to do it online, you do it by the 16th. And I'll give you one more, because I know this is probably the, the most popular of all, Amazon. I mean, everyone uses Amazon, and unless you're doing like an electronic Kindle download or something like that, December the 15th is the deadline for the free super saver shipping. Now, that's the way I like to roll. You know, you, you want to maximize your money at Christmas. 
But if you miss that deadline, they have the 19th for standard, the 21st for two-day, and the 22nd for one-day. So I'm just, I'm just saying, the, you, you probably should be aware of some of these deadlines. Now, is anyone in despair yet? Maybe you're, okay, I see a hand in the back. I see a couple of hands in the back. Some of you have said, man, I haven't done, I didn't do the Black Friday deal. And so I am in despair of all of these gifts of my extended family and beyond that I need to get. Hopeless, despair, freak out time. Well, when we come to Isaiah, Isaiah was a prophet writing to a people in despair. Israel, God's chosen people, had been exiled, kicked out of the land. Now, you may be sitting here for a second. John, exile, what does that mean? Kicked out of the land? I realize I've kind of jumped into the middle of a story here. So here's what I want to do for a few minutes. I want to, I want to help us bring us all to speed. Instead of just jumping into the middle of the story and cruising, I don't want to assume that every, everyone has this big context. So I want to go to the beginning of the story, and I want you to see how this despair has come upon them. And I'm going to the very beginning, as every good story has a beginning. In the beginning, God, who has always been, who will always be, created Adam and Eve. He created them for worship, to worship, love to serve him. And he put them in this land. He called this land the Garden of Eden. It was a good land. It was a very good land. And he gave them one command. And he demanded perfect obedience. You see, he was a loving, caring creator that wanted total trust. He didn't just want it. He demanded total trust. One tragic day. Adam and Eve decided that they, not God, would determine right and wrong. And they reject God as their king. They disobey God. And this brings upon tragic consequences. They're now separated from God. They bring on the curses of God. They are kicked out. They are exiled out of God's land. They were in God's land under God's blessing, and now they are out of God's land and separated from God. And soon they would physically die. But in the midst of such tragedy, God makes a promise, and this is what he tells them. He says, one of your descendants is going to come and be your Savior. He was going to save them. And so for the next centuries, God is preparing the way for this one, this promised one, to come on the scenes and save them and restore everything that was lost. And so that's why in the Old Testament, you have a long list of people, stories about people and genealogies 
So soon after Adam and Eve, we go to Noah and the flood, and Noah, the righteous one, and his family was saved. And then you move on to Abraham. And these promises, this promise that God made, was passed on down to all of these people so that Abraham and his children, Isaac, and then Jacob. And you know what Jacob's name was changed to? Jacob's name was changed to Israel. So if you've ever wondered, Israel, where does Israel come from? It comes from this genealogy, these people, one of the offspring of Abraham, Jacob. His name has changed to Israel. He has 12 sons. And then you see this promise continue to be passed on, specifically to Judah. You complete Genesis, and you have this story of Joseph and famine. Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers. He ends up in Egypt, in jail and in prison, but through interpreting dreams, God provides him a platform, and he's elevated along with the Pharaoh in Egypt so that when famine comes upon God's people, they flee to Egypt. And you know who they run into? They run into Joseph, and he provides for his people. But as the people of Israel begin to multiply in Egypt, the pharaohs die off. And God raises up Moses because now the people have been cast into slavery. And God raises up Moses to come free his people. So he goes to the pharaoh, the ten plagues, and God delivers his people. And they cross the Red Sea. And where is, God, where is Moses taking this people? He's taking them to the promised land. Do you see where we're going? In the beginning, they were in the land. And now God, through his promise, is going to bring a descendant to get the people back into God's land under God's blessing. But do you know what describes this people that Moses leads to the promised land? They are not faithful. They grumble. They complain. And none of them enter into the land until they die off. God raises up their children in Joshua who leads them into the land. They're in the promised land and they begin to multiply and to grow and God gives them judges and then they ask for a king. They're looking at all the other nations. God, give us a king like the other nations. And so God gives them a king because they had rejected God as being king over them. And so God raises up Saul. But you see, this was all a part of God's plan from the very beginning. And then Saul, as we see tragically, did not obey God. And so God now chooses a king. And he go and he chooses the one that no one would have expected. He chooses David, the shepherd boy David. And he makes many great promises to David and about his kingdom. And so David begins to build this kingdom and then his son Solomon. And the height of the Israel kingdom is with Solomon. Do you know what Solomon does? Solomon builds this magnificent temple in Jerusalem. He's one of the richest kings ever to live. This is the high point of Israel. But do you know what Solomon does? Solomon does not prove faithful. And he turns away from the Lord. And soon after that, Israel is on a path downhill. After Solomon's death, the kingdom is divided. You have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom named Israel, the southern kingdom called Judah. And they have their separate kings. 
And this is where we're coming here with Isaiah. You see, these kings never live up to this promised one that God had promised. They disobey God, and soon after, Israel and Judah both turn to idolatry. In 722 BC, the northern kingdom is exiled. They're kicked out of their land by the Assyrians. In 587 BC, the southern kingdom, Judah, is kicked out of their land by the Babylonians. Why? Idolatry. It's the same reason at the beginning. Adam and Eve were kicked out of the land. They did not prove faithful. Now Israel is kicked out of the land and they did not prove faithful. Why did I do this? Do you see the despair? In the very beginning, God had promised He is going to send someone to save His people. And you've had all of these people and these kings come, and they're now in the very same position that Adam and Eve were at the very beginning. But Isaiah is a prophet. And he comes on the scene, and he is the voice speaking for God about God and what he still will do. God has not forgot his promise. And so we begin in Isaiah 40. Isaiah begins to say, comfort, comfort for my people. He's providing comfort. He's reminding them these are the promises God has made and he will fulfill them. And we come to Isaiah 42. And that is where we pick up today. So if you'll look at me here in Isaiah 42, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes in it, who gives breath to people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Do you see that last verse there? This gives us a clue to what's going on. Isaiah says, it's God speaking, that God tells new things and he tells us before they even happen. 
And that's what's going on in Isaiah 42. God is telling us something that's going to happen in the future before it ever even happens. And so here's the central truth today that I want you to grasp, that Jesus is the promised servant who is the only hope for the world. Jesus is the promised servant who is the only hope for the world. As we walk through this, I just want to highlight three truths that Isaiah brings out from the text. And the first one is this, is that Jesus brings justice to the nations. If you'll look at Isaiah 42, 1 through 4, this word justice shows up a number of times. You see it in in verse 1. He will bring forth justice to the nations. You see it at the end of verse 3. He will faithfully bring forth justice. And then in verse 4, he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice. Justice is the central word, key theme in the first four verses here. But before we get to what justice is, we see that it's a servant that brings forth just this justice. Which raises a question, who is this servant? Now to give you a little background of Isaiah, Isaiah 42 is the first of four servant songs. You've got Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 50, and then Isaiah 52 and 53. There are four servant songs. If you were, if you were to do a, a word search of servant and Isaiah, it wouldn't show up until like, I think, chapter 38. And then you see all of these references to a servant in 40 through 53. And then you don't see it at all in the rest of Isaiah. So it's this concentration of this idea of a servant. Who is the servant? Well, if we look back at chapter 41, and let's do that real quick. In chapter 41... Verse 8, this is what Isaiah says. It says, But you, Israel, my servant. Who is the servant in Isaiah 41? It's Israel. But when we come to 42 and beyond, we see that this servant is not just big picture Israel, but there's actually a specific individual within Israel that is going to be the servant. That it's not a corporate entity, but it's an individual. So what, how does Isaiah describe this servant in chapter 42? Well, let's just look at it. He says, my, my servant whom I uphold. So we see, first of all, that God is the one that upholds the servant. It is the success of God. God upholds this servant, my chosen, in whom my soul delight. This servant is God's delight. And this is in contrast with the idols. So in chapter 41, the end of chapter 41 in Isaiah, it's God, it's Isaiah speaking against the futility of all of these idols. So look, look at Isaiah 41, verse 24. And Isaiah 41, 24 says, Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you talking about idols. The idols are an abomination, but this servant, this chosen one, is a delight. This is this servant. It is a delight. And then Isaiah also says that the Spirit of God is upon him. Now, what I want to do now is give us a little canonical context. Look at the big picture. When Jesus comes on the scene, now I've already identified who this servant is for you. I'm saying that it is Jesus. This servant is Jesus. But now I'm going to kind of walk you through 
how we get there. When Jesus comes on the scene and he is baptized, I've got it up here on the text here, on the, on the, um, on the screen. In Matthew 3, 16, it says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Do you hear similar language here? This servant, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, my spirit is upon him. You've got the Spirit of God coming upon Jesus and this voice, the Father saying, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. We continue on in Jesus' life and at the transfiguration in Matthew 17. Look what it says here about Jesus. It says, a voice came It's Matthew 17 and Luke 9. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. This Jesus is identified by this language as this chosen servant in Isaiah. But even as we think of this word servant, it's not hard to connect Jesus with the servant. Mark 10, 45. This is what the servant Jesus says. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. What about Philippians 2? The great hymn in Philippians. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made Himself nothing taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Who is this servant? Jesus is this servant. Then we need to ask the next question. What does this servant do? And we see clearly, going back to Isaiah 42, this servant brings forth justice. Now, when you hear that word justice, what comes to mind? You may be thinking quickly of social justice. Social justice is a very popular term, phrase, push. When you think of social justice, you think of the poor, the orphan, the oppressed. And we could continue on, right? Now, when we think of justice, we've got to make sure we understand this rightly because if we don't understand what justice is, we don't understand what this servant is bringing. Now, I'm going to say there are two parts to justice in, in light of the Old Testament context here. The first one is this, that justice would be a right social order. So when it says the servant is going to bring justice, this isn't hard to think about the life of Christ. Did he not come For the least of these, you see him healing the sick. You see him hanging out with those who were despised by everyone else, specifically the Pharisees who looked down on them. He, Jesus says, I came to seek and to save that was lost. He says, I didn't come for the righteous. I came for the sick, those who need a Savior. Jesus came for those who truly needed him the the most. But it's not just about a right social order. 
It's a right social order where there's a right relationship between the world and its creator. Jesus is not just concerned about coming and bringing social justice, that now everyone has food and that everyone, all the money is distributed equally upon everyone. That is not just, he is concerned that the world is now in right relation with its creator. That is the second part of this justice here. Now, when we think about this, our hearts as followers of Christ should be burdened for the oppressed. I mean, what does James say? What true religion is? True religion is this. Look after orphans and widows in their distress. We should be concerned that we have compassion for those who do not have. That ought to be a compassion. That ought to, that ought to flow from us as followers of Christ. Because we know that ultimately when Jesus returns and He sets up His kingdom and a new heaven and a new earth, there will be perfect justice. Now, here's where we need to make sure we think rightly. I should be concerned for social justice, but I need to be reminded of this. Only Jesus will be the true hope for a true just world. It's only in Jesus. And when he sets up his kingdom, he is the one that sets everything right. This is just a glimpse and a picture of his kingdom to come, but we must make sure that in social justice that we do not lose the gospel. Because what is utmost importance is that the world is related to its creator, and Jesus came to make that happen. So he brings justice, he is the only hope for the Gentiles, for the world. And how does he do this? Look here in verses 2 and following, to see how Jesus brings justice. It says, in verse 2, it says, He will not cry aloud or lift up His voice or make it heard in the street. We see, first of all, that Jesus, this servant, is not going to come forcefully. This text, Isaiah 42, is quoted in Matthew 12. Jesus is healing a number of people of their illnesses, and then he quotes this, and he says, this is to fulfill Isaiah 42. But before he quotes it, he says this. He says, do not tell anyone who I am. Why does he say that? And then he quotes this. His point is this. He wants them to know, contrary to first century rabbinical thought, he wasn't going to come proclaiming and forcing a kingdom, a physical kingdom. That was not his agenda. He was not trying to do that. He, he didn't have a political agenda. He wasn't going to come with a military campaign with great fanfare, but with gentleness and meekness. And so he says, hey, this is how I'm going to establish my kingdom. It's not going to be through military. It's going to be through the power of the gospel. So he's not going to come forcefully. The second thing we see here in verse 3 is that he won't crush the weak. Look at verse 3. A bruised reed he will not break. What, is a, what does this mean? Well, a reed would have been something that they would have fashioned into a small musical instrument. If it's bruised, 
It's useless. How could they use it for this instrument if it was bruised? It's useless. It would have been done away with. The second illustration we have here is a faintly burning wick or a smoldering wick. You may have seen this. A candle that has a wick that is not putting off much light. What do you use it for? Can it light up the room? No. So what would you do? Blow it out? It's useless. Do away with it. What does it say about this servant? It says here that he will not break that which is useless. And he will not quench that which is useless. What we would see as useless, and he's referring to people here, Jesus does not crush the weak. He defends them. If you're here today, maybe this is your thought. I'm useless. I'm a nobody. This servant came not to crush you, but to save you. Jesus is your rescue. This is who this servant is. But we have a final analogy picture here in verse 4. It says, He will not grow faint or be discouraged. And we see that this servant will not give up. This servant is unweakened by the demands of his mission. And you know what we even get a sense of here in verse 4? We get a sense here that suffering is being gently suggested. Listen, he will not grow faint or be discouraged. Now, this idea of a suffering servant, should that surprise us? I want you to think about this. We're talking about justice. This, is serv- this servant is going to bring justice to the nations. But how does he do it? God brings about justice to the nations through one of the most unjust events in all of history. The cross. The cross is one of the most unjust events. And that is the means by which God brings forth justice. I want to fast forward in Isaiah here. And I want to take a peek at something. Flip forward to Isaiah 53 in your Bibles. And Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 4, we see that this servant is going to be a suffering servant. Isaiah 53, verse 4, this is what the prophet writes, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Do you hear Isaiah 42, 4 in the background? He will not grow faint and he will not be discouraged. Even as Isaiah 52 is saying, Isaiah 53 is saying that he is crushed, that he is wounded. He was unweakened by his mission. Let's continue on. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of of us all. He was oppressed. Do you see the injustice? 
he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet, verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This was injustice that brought you justice. Now in the New Testament, Peter reflects on this. And I want you to see what Peter says here. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued to trust and trusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. You see, when we talk about justice, When we look at the cross, here's what we see. God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The love of God comes to perfection and rectifying sinners. Now this has huge implications on your life that I want you to think about. God is just and he shows no partiality. So if you're here today, we are all equal in the sight of God. And we all deserve this punishment. We deserve the tragic consequences of sin, just like Adam and Eve. There is no partiality in the justice of God. But here's the good news. God has judged. He will punish every sin, but he also provides the rescue himself. Jesus is the rescue. Will you come to him in repentance and faith today? The only way justice will be brought to you is if you come and find your sins taken care of on the cross. Believe, trust today. The second truth I want to share with you is this. Jesus not only brings justice, he brings light for the nations. Back in Isaiah 42, let's go back there. Isaiah 42, 
We see here in verse 6 of Isaiah 42 that God says, I'm the Lord, I've called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. This language of covenant is not new for the people of God. From the very beginning, God made a covenant with His people. You may think of the covenant He made with Abraham. With Abraham, He says that I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless those who bless you and in you all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And this covenant continues on. There's a, a big covenant made with David, one of these kings, that one of your offspring, one of your descendants is going to reign and his kingdom will last forever. A covenant signifies and guarantees promises made by one party to another. So God has promised something and he makes a covenant and it binds him so that you'll know if I've promised it, it's going to happen. And so now he's offering this servant as a covenant. Now you may be thinking as you kind of look forward to the time of Christ when Jesus is spending the Last Supper with his disciples and he takes the bread and he takes the cup and he says this blood is the blood of the new covenant which is poured out for you. You see, God's promises will be fulfilled through this servant, Jesus. Not only is this servant a covenant for the people, we see here it says that he is a light for the nations. This light theme was significant last week in Isaiah 9 that Tanner preached with us. This idea of light suggests widening the scope of revelation. So you've, you've got a light for the Gentiles. And what we see here is that this servant is not just serving Israel. This servant is serving the world. This text is actually quoted in Acts 13, 47. And Paul quotes it and he says, we are taking the gospel to the Gentiles in fulfillment of Isaiah 42. He is a light for the Gentiles. He came as the Messiah of Israel and yet he is the Savior of the world. Now, what are the implications of this? The gospel is for the world, and it's for the nations. And we are recipients of this light. It has come to us because we are Gentiles. We are not a part of the people of Israel, and we have received it. But it has huge implications on the mission of the church. For if we're to grasp this and understand that this is a light, not just for Medford and greater Boston, but for the nations, that our heart should beat and thrive for the nations to see this light. Do you pray for the nations? Do you give so that the nations might receive during December? We're taking up our Great Commission giving. And 100% of it goes to take the gospel to those who are in darkness and have very little light of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Will you pray? Will you give? Maybe God would say, I want to go. I want to send you to take this light to the nations. And then we see in verse 7, to open eyes that are blind, 
to bring out prisoners from the dungeon. Now, as we look to Jesus, we see physically he opens eyes that are blind. Physically, he is going to free those who are captive, but spiritually, he opens blind eyes to see the light of the glory of Jesus, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He opens our eyes. He opened my eyes to see the beauty of God. This is what Jesus does. Soon after in Isaiah, God has promised that he is going to free them from exile. He's going to send a king named Cyrus who is going to let them go. And he's going to say, yes, you can go back to your land and rebuild your temple and your walls. But Isaiah wants them to know pretty clearly this. That just because you go back to your land, that does not necessarily mean that it will produce different behavior. You know what's interesting in the Hebrew Bible? Do you know the last paragraph of the Hebrew Bible is 2 Chronicles 36? And what it is, it's the decree of Cyrus, this king. And he's telling Israel, you can go back to your land and you can build your house. And the very last words of the Hebrew Bible are, let him go up. Was that the last historical part of the Hebrew Bible? No, it wasn't. But that was, in the Hebrew Bible, those are the last words. We know Ezra and Nehemiah went back. And what did they do? They rebuilt the walls and worked on the temple, right? But what is the chronicler highlighting? Hey, just because you're back in the land, that's not going to produce new behavior. You still need a Savior. And so the chronicler is, is looking past the return from the exile to this promised one, this servant, who would come and bring them out of darkness and set them free. Last truth I want to share with you, wrapping up. Jesus brings justice to the nations. Jesus is a light for the nations. God is the true Lord of history. You may be asking, how do I know that God will keep his promises. What's the answer given in Isaiah 42? Look at verse 5. In Isaiah 42, 5, Isaiah writes, Thus says the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to people on it and spirit to those who walk it. I am the Lord. You can know that God will fulfill His promises because He is the true Creator. And this is in contrast to the futility of these idols that Israel had turned to. God is the true God. He created and He sustained. Indeed, God is the true Lord of history. He does all that He pleases to the very end. God is actually, in verse 8 and 9, drawing attention to these impossible predictions. He's saying, I'm going to tell you of things before they even happen. How, I want to ask two questions as we wrap up. How do you explain the consistency of the storyline of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation? How do you explain that? 
There is one story, and it is consistent, and the themes are the same. God is going to provide, but yet it's different authors. Over 40 different authors of the whole Bible, and they're telling one big story, the same story. But the second question I want to ask is, how do you explain all of the predictions that are made about Jesus that he fulfills? Do you realize there are over 300 prophecies made about Christ that he has either fulfilled or will fulfill in the days ahead? It was actually um, a guy by the name of Peter Stoner. He was a skeptic of the Bible. And he looked at all of the prophecies of Jesus, and he looked at 48 significant ones, and he narrowed it down to eight of them. Eight of the prophecies that would significantly and severely determine who this Messiah would be. And then he did some statistics, and he said, what are the chances that one person could fulfill all eight of these? We're talking about just eight of them. And he says it's one and ten to the 17th power. You guys see how many zeros? 17 zeros there. And he gives a, a visual image. He says, I want you to picture the state of Texas. And if you were to take silver dollars and you were to cover the state of Texas two feet deep, hey, for the sake of analogy, let's just think of spring step. Two feet deep and silver dollars, I go and I mark one of them. And I blindfold you and I go tell you to find it. Now, how easy would it be to find it in spring step? Two feet deep of silver dollars. I want you to take that to the state of Texas. Those are the chances of one person fulfilling all of these predictions of the coming Messiah. How does it happen? This is the word of God. If he is creator, if he is sustainer, if he knows all things, well, then he can declare and it can happen. Let me ask you a question. Are you in despair today? Do you long to be in relationship with Jesus Christ? Can you relate to the Israelites who are exiled, exiled and longing to be in the land of God under God's rule and God's blessing, but yet feel hopeless? The good news is this servant is your only hope. There is no other. Trust him, believe him, live for him, know him. He will save you from your sin. Receive the gift of Christmas. Last question. Do you know people in despair who feel hopeless? Give the gift of Christmas. We want to be a church that is about the mission of God. And the mission of God is that we would take this light to the nations. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, would you open our eyes to see this light? God, if there are people here today that are still in spiritual, spiritual darkness, I pray that you would open their eyes, you would shine in their hearts to give them the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. God, would you set them free, those that are in spiritual slavery? And God, would you burden us for those who do not have this light, that we would not just receive it, but that we would be generous and give it. I pray in Christ's name, amen.